0: Well, good morning. Thanks so much for being here uh, with us. If I haven't, been. and uh, I have the honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here. And it's very grateful that you're joining us today. We are in a series in Genesis 2 and 3. We've been in it all fall. We have two weeks left. This is the second last week. And so if you haven't been with us, well, I'll just say that it's a precursor. When I put these sermon series together and then I preach through them, I'm always like, oh, we'll get to that later. I'll keep it out of this week. And then it's like, we'll get to it later. We'll get to it later. And then I get to the end and there's like 50 things. I'm like, oh, we didn't get to any of them. So today we got a bunch to talk about. Uh, so a summary of, of where we are, of where we've been, uh, just in case you haven't been uh, with us. So Genesis 2, basically, you can just think two thumbs up. It's this really great situation. God has created this world, uh, and he's, he's made these people. He's put them in this garden on top of this mountain, which in the understanding of the Bible is a place that's very close to God. And there's all this potential for these humans. If they make the right choice, if they pass the test, they can be part of this blessing that's going to flow out to the rest of the world, bring water to the desert in the vernacular of the Bible. But Genesis 3 basically takes these two thumbs up and just starts to turn them down. Um, What we meet is this first character that's a snake, and the snake uh, could be the most uh, powerful animal, could be the most wise animal, or it could become this chaos creature. And we see that the snake chooses the second path to become the chaos creature. And then it tempts the humans, and the humans have the same choice. They're these elevated creatures in the world. What are they going to do with their power that God has given them? And they, instead of choosing to partner with God, they choose to partner with the snake, and they also become chaos creatures, unleashing chaos. And as Gareth preached last week, things from there just fall apart. Basically, that's what the narrative says. And that's one of the key teachings that we need to take from Genesis 2 and 3 of understanding sin, understanding what happens when we don't partner with God, that, that we can never contain those things. We never can keep them in a box. The things that we do on our own, in private, on our phones with our money, with our time, those things never stay locked in those places. They always tumble out. It's like an avalanche that you cannot control. And so the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to continue to look at, follows that conversation. The people have failed the test, they've had a conversation with God, and now God is the main speaker, and he is speaking curses and consequences. But before we zoom into that section of the passage, I want to zoom out a little bit, because we can learn something really important about reading the Bible and how to become better Bible readers. So if you're looking at Genesis uh, 3 on a screen, or if you're just hearing it read aloud, as we do here often, um, you'll, you'll get the gist of the passage. You'll be able to understand what's going on. But if you were able to read it in a physical Bible which is uh, what Pastor Mitch thinks, that's the only way real Christians read the Bible, Um, then you will see, you will actually see something else. He is for once correct on this one, okay? So I've just taken it from uh, online, and this is how uh, Genesis 3 looks. So, chapter 3, the temptation and the fall. The people meet the snake, and they make the wrong choice. They choose to partner with the snake. That's what it looks like. The second part of the passage, this is sin's consequences. This is what Gareth preached on last week, where they have this conversation with God. And then here's the section of of Scripture that we're looking at today. It follows that. And you might notice something a little bit different about this section of Scripture. It's actually formatted differently. There's an indentation to all of the words that God is saying. And what the English, uh, you know, compilers of the Bible are trying to signal for us is that there's a difference here. This is less like the paragraphed dialogue that we've seen so far, and it's more like a poem. That's actually what it is. When you see it indented like that, it's talking about it being a poem, which, in my mind, is a really, really weird way to express curses and consequences. Um, I don't know if you've ever expressed them in a poem before. Um, maybe if you're a rapper, you know, you might do something like that. If Drake is like, here's the curses and consequences for you, Meek Mill. Um, or Taylor Swift, if she like, breaks up with another boyfriend, she's like, I think I need to put some terrible poetry into a new album. Um, which is just my warning to you, Travis Kelsey. I know you're listening. Um, he's our third podcast listener. It's Gareth's mom, my mom, and Travis Kelsey. That's who listens to our podcast. But So I, I'm reminding us here of what Genesis 1 is and what it's doing. It's ancient literature. And so it functions in a way that we might not be familiar with. And we need to remind ourselves of that every time we come to the, the story of the Bible. And it's also trying to teach us how to read the rest of the story of the Bible. And so if we are to look at Genesis 1 to 11 overall, we'll see this pattern repeat again and again and again and again. Look, let's just watch here how it happens. Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 is actually a, has a poetic structure to it altogether. You'll remember all these repeated words and phrases. But halfway through, at a key point, there's a poem inside of a poem. It's like poem inception that happens. At the key point of God's creation, he says this beautiful poem about humans. See how it's inset once again, and we'll look at that today. Genesis 2 also has a poem within a poem where the man has the woman and he speaks this beautiful poem about her. We'll talk about that today. Then Genesis 3, as we saw, has this poem where God speaks the curses and consequences. And so we can even, you can even see from just looking at these poems, just these small sections, what the Bible is doing. You can follow the narrative arc. The Genesis 1 poem is awesome. It's this beautiful poem about what we are as humans. Genesis 2, a beautiful poem about how men and women are to relate to each other. And Genesis 3, Curses and Consequences. You can just start to see the narrative arc. Genesis 4, then, we get another poem. It's this, by this guy named Lamech. He's the worst guy so far that we've met in the Bible. He gather, He's the first polygamist. He gathers women as if they're, you know, property. And then this whole poem is just about him boasting about killing people. So you just see it starting to go down further and further. Then the next block of Scripture is Noah. His life is very complicated. At the end of his life, his poem is both blessing and curse. This is our world. Genesis 12, the story of Abraham, begins with God speaking a poem over Abraham of not curse, but blessing, of the opportunity of blessing. And so this is how the Bible works. And Genesis 1 to 11 is signaling to us that these poems or songs are going to be one of the most important ways that specifically the Hebrew Scriptures... Signals what's going on, that it summarizes information. You've got to remember, there's no highlighting, there's no all caps, there's no underline at this time. So one of the ways the Bible signals to us what the important summaries are is through poetry. And again, this is super weird to us, because in our culture, we would never choose to summarize important information in a poem. Like, if you went to work tomorrow and your boss is like, actually, can I speak with you in this room for a minute, and you walk in there and there's an HR rep in there, and they're like, hi, thanks for coming in, we have some very important information to tell you about your employment, and since we want to be super clear, we're only going to speak in haikus, you'd be like, no, that's not going to help me at all, right? We we would never, ever do something like that. That sounds like a, a skit from you should probably leave, or I think you should should leave or something like that and that's the only way we would ever try to communicate clearly in a poem today like if i said to you hey could you just tell me what you think so far of this genesis 2 and 3 series just send me an email and you emailed me tomorrow and said roses are red violets are blue i'm sick of talking about chaos monsters how about you i'd be like that was actually quite clear and and hurtful but clear Um, Right, So we don't think of, of doing it that way. If in our culture, the way that we might summarize really important information is probably more like a telegraph, something like that. Bullet points, summaries, necessary information, facts. So here's an example. I just Googled uh, famous war telegraphs. Here's one. We must leave office. Clear action call. All the bungalows are on fire, burning down by the sepoys of Meirut. They came in this morning. Mr. C. Todd is dead, we think. He went out this morning and has not yet returned. We learned that nine Europeans were killed. We are off. Goodbye. Both clear and polite, which is really what you want. Um, But this is, even if you don't know where the sepoys of Meirut are or have any clue who Mr. C. Todd is, if you got dropped off in that scenario, you would know exactly what to do, exactly what's going on. And so when it comes to God, who we assume wants to communicate clearly with us, this is probably more what we are thinking we're going to get, what we're looking for. And that's fine. You can want what you want. But we're also, when we do that, we're importing our cultural categories onto this ancient literature. And it's not what I think it gives us because Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 to 11 is signaling to us that a telegraph is not often what we're going to get, especially when it comes to the Hebrew scripture. What we're going to get at the most important moments of time is something more like a song, something more like a poem. So there's so much I could say about this But I'm just going to say one thing very quickly, and then we're going to move on to our text for today. I think that one of the most fundamental errors we make as modern Western people when we read this text is that we try to turn these poems into telegraphs. And so then what happens is that we try to turn this poem into a telegraph, and then someone else tries to turn it into a telegraph, too. And then we compare telegraphs, and we're like, oh, you're a heretic, because your telegraph is different than my telegraph. And it just divides us. And this is where we get into so many of the controversies about Genesis 1 to 11. Is we're not just letting it be what it is. An ancient creation narrative. And poetry. And so I don't have time to go into that. So I'm just going to be really clear. Don't do that. Stop it. If that's what you want to do, and that's what I want to do. Just stop. And let it be what it is. And here's the reason why. Because I think, in my experience, when I just allow it to be what it is, and I get over my cultural biases of what it should be, I actually meet God in this passage, as I've had the privilege of studying it week after week, that God stands behind these words if we allow it to be what it is. And I long for you to meet God. And so my encouragement to us is to allow it to be what it is, and that partly means, as readers of the Bible, we need to learn how to read poetry, which you might be like, oh, no, come on, really? I'm not talking about postmodern poetry or modern poetry. You don't have to necessarily read that or enjoy reading it. One of the key things, well, I'll just say this. I've started reading more poetry recently. One of the reasons is because it forces you to slow down. Even if you don't like poetry, it just forces you to slow down. If you read a poem as fast as I regularly read, I'm like, I don't know what's going on in there. I think there's a house in there somewhere. So you have to go back and read it again and be like, oh, the house was like a metaphor for her relationship with her mom. And then you read it again, you're like, the house is on fire. Like, that's how it's supposed to work, and that's how biblical poetry is supposed to work repetition, meditation. That's what Psalm 1 invites us to. Meditate on the story again and again and again. Come to these poems and then come to the next poem, as we'll do today, and you'll see new, new things come out. But learn to be a good reader of the story. That's part of what Genesis 1 to 11 is teaching us. Okay, so that's zooming out. Now let's slowly zoom in on this passage that we're looking at again today. So this is a poem, once again. God is speaking. The snake is cursed. So that God speaks curses and consequences. The snake is a character who becomes cursed, which means for the rest of the story, he is not going to be a good character. He is only going to unleash chaos into the world. The humans are not cursed in this passage, but they are given consequences. And the understanding here is really, it's really important to understand what's happening. When we as humans choose not to partner with God, but choose to partner with the snake to become vessels of chaos, there are natural consequences. That's what it says. God doesn't have to come and just dunk on you for something to go wrong. There are natural consequences to our actions. But in this passage, what we see is that God is turning up these natural consequences. So if they were sitting at like a four, God is turning them up to a seven. And one of the reasons that he's doing that is so that we might see that following the snake isn't all it's cut out to be. It isn't everything that he promises. And so how does God turn up the consequences so far in this passage? We looked at this two weeks ago. One of the, the, um, the great privileges of being human is that we are able to be like God in the sense that we are able to also be fruitful and multiply. That's what we see God doing, is he's creating, and we also get to create like this God. And there's many different ways as humans that we do this. But for women, one of the unique ways that women can do this is that they are able to uh, conceive, carry, and birth children into the world. And then with their partners, with their uh, family, with their tribe, they're able to raise these children into people who look like God. They grow as trees. And one of the unique ways that men, at least in the ancient Near East, did this is they would uh, work the ground primarily. That was their job. So they would plant seeds, they would cultivate the ground. And again, with their family and with their tribe, they would be fruitful and multiply. They would create enough food for everybody else. So these things would have always taken work, But what God says in this poem is that now that's going to be characterized. These efforts to be fruitful and multiply are going to be characterized by etzeb. That's the Hebrew word. Which means not just physical pain, but but emotional pain. They're going to become difficult. They're going to become filled with grief. And then what we see is God saying these words. So in the midst of speaking these consequences, he speaks specifically to the woman and he says this. And your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Merry Christmas, by the way. I don't think I said that to you guys yet. So, Okay, we're going to look at this passage in three different parts this morning. So here's the first one. I just want to give us a reminder. This passage and this whole section of God's poem is not describing the world in the way that it should be. Or the way that God wants it to be. That's Genesis 1, two thumbs up. Genesis 2, two thumbs up. Genesis 3, two thumbs down. And that's where we are. It's describing the consequences of breaking the treaty with God, what happens. And it's important for us to remember that both emotionally as we move through this passage, but also as we think about interpreting it. Because very unfortunately, in the history of interpretation, this passage has sometimes been used not as to describe two thumbs down, but to describe the way the world should be. And that is not at all, uh, from what I understand, the context of the passage. Just like God says, it is not good that our efforts to be fruitful and multiply will be filled with etsep, with grief. It is also not the way that the world should be. This is not the way the world should be, whatever it says, whatever it means. So let's take a look at that. That's the second part of what we're going to do. What does this verse actually mean? And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we need to look at this verse. We need to zoom out slightly and look at this verse within the wider context of these chapters. And that's, again, what what Genesis 1 to 11 is doing, is it's encouraging us to keep reading. Keep reading the story. Find out what these verses mean. Find out how these consequences play out in real life. And fortunately for us, we don't have to go very far in God's story to see these words repeated almost verbatim, because that happens in the next chapter. Genesis 4, where it says something very, very similar to this. So let's read through this this, uh, section of Scripture and see what we can understand about what it says in Genesis 3. So Genesis 4, verse 1. So the people, uh, God has spoken his consequences on them. They're kicked out of the garden. This is the next story, Genesis 4. It says, The man was intimate with Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. In this one little verse, we see what life looks like outside of the garden and the complexity now of what it means to be human. On one hand, Eve speaks these beautiful words. I have, with the Lord's help, I have partnered with God and I have been fruitful and multiplied. she's, She's referencing Genesis 1 in her own words. It's a beautiful statement about what it means to be a mother and what it means to be a human and to partner with each other and partner with God. But at the same time, we see in this sentence or in this verse words that we've just seen in Genesis 3 that God has used. Conceive and give birth. And what did God say about those words? They are going to be filled with etzeb. They're going to be filled with pain. So on one hand, we will be rejoicing with Eve, and on the other hand, we should be thinking, oh no, where is the etzeb going to come? Where is this pain going to show up in the story? So we keep reading. She also gave birth to her brother Abel, now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. Once again, the complications of what it means to be human. It's awesome that your sons have jobs. Like, in this economy, fantastic. They're not going to be able to afford a house, you know, being shepherds. But, you know, it's good that they have a job. But what, we, what have we heard about the ground already? The ground in Genesis 3 is cursed. And our efforts in the ground are going to be characterized by Etzeb. And so we should be thinking, oh, no. What's going to happen? Verse 3: In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious and he looked despondent. So we don't have time to talk about why God didn't regard Cain's offering. We just need to see that Cain was upset, right? We just think of like Caillou, if you've ever watched that kid's show. Cain was upset. Okay, that's all we need to know. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? God is doing exactly the same thing that he did with Adam and Eve, just asking some questions. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. First time the word sin is used here in the Bible, is right here. And God is saying to Cain, Look, you are standing at your own tree. Just like your parents stood at a tree, you are now at a tree of decision, a tree of testing. And on one side, there is the snake. Although in this passage, it's not a snake anymore. It's something like a panther, some sort of wild beast that is coiled and crouched and ready to pounce on you. And this is important for the understanding of sin in the Bible. Sin isn't just something that we do. It's not some, something like ethereal thing out there. Sin is an active agent. Sin is a superorganism. It wants us. It's ready to pounce. And here's the key verse for us this morning. It's, Sin wants to pounce. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Almost exactly the same words we saw in Genesis 3. And these are the only, this is the only other time these words are used in the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's really key for us to understand what it means in Genesis 3. So what is this passage talking about, Genesis 4? God here is describing a power struggle between two people. Or between two characters, I think you can say. So on one hand, there is this active force out there, sin. The snake, the chaos monster. And this chaos monster has some sort of a desire for Cain. And it's not like a good desire. It's not like, I want to give you a Tesla. I desire that. The desire here is a desire to be powerful over Cain. Sometimes this word here, uh, desire, is, is translated as consume or dominate, or control. It wants to have power over top of Cain so that Cain becomes completely enveloped by the dark forces of the world, that he becomes a chaos monster. He becomes a puppet of the dark side, that he becomes subhuman. That's the goal. But, God says, you must rule over it. The power dynamic, God says, is not supposed to be that the sin has power over you, but you can rule over it. You must rule over it. And here, God is referring to the picture of the world painted in Genesis 1. So here it is. I'm kind of trying to draw it out for us. In Genesis 1, this is the ideal picture of the order world. God, Yahweh Elohim, is reigning and ruling above all things. And as humans, we're given this elevated position. We are images of God. And so we are given delegated leadership. We can have dominion and rule and lead over the rest of the world just as God does. And in our world, this is not a type of consumeristic ruling where we just go and take what we want. That's not the way that, that God has been portrayed, and that's not the way that we are to be as humans. The way that we are to rule is to order the world for flourishing, for cosmic flourishing and for shalom. That is our invitation as human beings. So we are to rule over everything else, which includes animals, which would include snakes and panthers. So when Genesis 3, when the snake comes to tempt the humans, what should happen is that the humans at the tree, when the snake tries to take leadership over them, is the humans should put the snake in his place. You should be like, no, 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 That's not. you're not Yahweh Elohim, and what you're saying about Yahweh Elohim is not true. I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to tell you what is actually true of the delegated leadership that I've had over, from God. And unfortunately, that is not what happens. But Genesis 4, God is replaying this exact same scenario for Cain. He's telling him, dude, this is your tree moment. He probably didn't say dude, but, you know. This is your tree moment. Sin is here. Sin is crouching, looking to pounce. Do not let him devour you. Instead, rule over him. That is the, the context So now let's go back to our story in Genesis 3 where God is speaking these curses and consequences. God says to the woman that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The language is almost identical, but one of the characters is different and that makes all the difference in the world. Because, so instead of sin, it is now a woman. And this is really important because what does... What is the relationship supposed to be like between men and women, according to Genesis 1? Well, let's go back to our diagram here. We've got Yahweh Elohim reigning and ruling, and then humans are given delegated leadership. And very importantly, in Genesis 1, in the poem that God speaks in Genesis 1, he says something very important about how humans are to relate to one another. says he has created them in his image, male and female, he has created them. If you want to go to the next slide. So this is the, this is the God poem, and it says very specifically, God is created in, we are created in God's image, male and female. We are to rule together. We are to be co-rulers. That's what Genesis 1 is saying. We are not made to rule over one another. We are not made to dominate one another. That is not the way that the world is supposed to work. That is not the ordered world of Genesis 1. We are together as humans to rule over one another the land, the plants, and the animals. This is how the world is supposed to be. So in Genesis 3, when the people fail at the tree, it's not that they just ate an apple. And they're like, whoops, I had dessert before I had my meal, Dad. And then God's like, oh, you get all these consequences. That's what it feels like sometimes when we read it. What's happening in Genesis 3 at the tree is something much bigger. They are not listening to Yahweh Elohim But they are listening to the snake. And in effect, what we're doing is we're just completely turning this world upside down. The whole world. It's not that we're free. That's a lie. That's not how the Bible looks at it. When we don't follow God, it's not like we're free and now we don't have this big God person, you know, looking over our shoulder and making us feel guilty. All we're doing is exchanging rulers, according to the Bible. We're trading this benevolent Elohim, Yahweh, for the Sin Panther. That's what the Bible is trying to say. If you want to go to the next slide, it it shows that a little bit. So what will, if the snake now takes leadership over us, the question is what kind of leadership, what what kind of world will that produce? Well, if God produced order, the snake's leadership will now produce chaos. If God's rule produced partnership, where humans could partner with each other, the snake's rule will now produce power grabs. And so God names it. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, people are locked in this epic power struggle with each other because the rule over us is the snake and not Yahweh Elohim. Now, I want to take a quick look at two other stories. Actually, sorry, let me just ask. Is it clear again what's going on? Okay, sort of, maybe. Well, let's look at two other stories that really, I think, play this out, and they show how this happens both in Genesis 2 and 3. And they're the naming stories, which I know you were hoping we'd talk about today. So here we go. Okay, so Genesis 2. Let's remember the world that we have in Genesis 2. Two thumbs up. It's still all good. So we've got God reigning and ruling. We've got this human who is there. He is told he is a royal priest, and he gets to take that blessing into the rest of the world to care for the garden and to keep it. But there's a problem. Verse 18. Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good for a human to be alone, so I will make a help." counterpart for him. In Hebrew, this word is azer connecto. And uh, one of the people that Mitch and I were listening to, I think he's is he Irish? Scottish? Dr. Proven? Scottish. So he's like a Hebrew expert, but he's also Scottish. So he's like, Azer And you're like, I don't think that's how they said it in Hebrew, but I, don't know. I also don't know how they said it in Hebrew. But every time I hear those words, I hear Dr. Provence say it. Um, Azer, so the word help counterpart is Azer. That word is used for God elsewhere in the Bible. It's not kitchen help. When you know that song from the 90s, uh, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, where does my help come from? That's talking about the Psalms. That word is the same word that's used here. God, as our helper. I, I will make a helper for him. This word ken, uh, counterpart is the word kenegdo in, in Hebrew. And a counterpart, I think, is a great translation. It's, it's translated elsewhere as someone who will go in front of me. Someone who I can be uncovered with. And, you know, our junior high minds are like, oh, they could be uncovered together. Oh. Yeah, that is part of it. And it's part of the story where they're naked. But the whole point is that they could be fully themselves. They can be naked and unashamed with each other. I need someone who I can be naked and unashamed with, who can partner with me in that way. These words aren't demeaning at all. Verse 19, Yahweh formed from the ground every living creature of the field and every bird of the skies, and he brought them to the human to see what, they would, what he would call it. And everything which the human would call it a living being, that was its name. The human is par- participating in what it means to be an image of God. God uses his language to create The human is doing the same thing. It's part of the gift of what it means to be a human. Verse 20. And the human called the names of every beast and bird of the skies and every living creature on the field. But for the human there was not found a help counterpart. So if you actually picture this verse... As if it's video camera footage, it's just like the most bizarre idea in the world. It's like, I picture like the human sitting there, and God brings like a monkey, and he's like, is this a good help counterpart for you? And the, guy, the guy's like, oh, no, thanks. And then he's like, how about a penguin? And it's just like, it's just, you know, it, it makes me think of if you've ever got a gift that you really don't want... You know, you're like, thanks, Aunt Ethel, another crystal vase, so great. Uh, We have a whole cupboard for those. But that's totally not what's going on. If you think of it like that, again, it's just like an SNL skit. What's happening in this passage is something totally different. The the point of this narrative is is that the human can't find a help counterpart in something that he's supposed to rule over. He can't find a help counterpart in a creature, in a wild beast, the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for creature that's used here is hayah. He can't find a helper amidst the hayah. Hold on to that for a minute. We'll come back to it. He needs a partner. He needs an connect connecto. Verse 21. So Yahweh caused a fall, to fall a deep sleep on the human, and he slept. And he took one of his sides, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And Yahweh built the side. This is tabernacle building language. That's where this shows up next in the story. Yahweh built the side which he took from the human into woman, and he brought her to the human. And the human said, and here is where the poem comes, what is the human going to say? Oh, great, someone to make me sandwiches. Let's see. This time, unlike all the other times that you brought the penguin and you brought the goat, this time, bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, we are one. This one will be called woman, for from man this one was taken. In Hebrew, the word for woman is isha. The word for man is ish. Very close. What it's trying to say is men and women are different, but they are one. A beautiful picture here of what's happening in this passage. This is Genesis 3. This is the story. Remember, two thumbs up. And so, very interestingly, after... Oh, sorry, it's Genesis 2. I you wrote Genesis 3. It's Genesis 2. Okay, so very interestingly, now the humans fail at the tree... Right, God gives his little emo poem. And then the next verse, we read another naming story. Here it is. Uh, Genesis 3.20 now. And the woman called the name of his woman, or the human called the name of his woman Hawa, for she is the mother of all living. And you're like, dude, didn't you just name once already? What are you doing? And these are the moments where these weird things happen in the Bible, where it's like, yeah, dig in, have a look. Because what's happened here is something has shifted between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. The humans have failed at the tree. And Dr. Proven has shown me that there's three really important shifts that are happening here. Here's the first one. Remember the names in the first story? Ish and Isha. Closeness. They're almost exactly the same, but there's difference. Now the names that are given in Genesis 3 are Adam and Hawa. The man takes the name Adam, and he gives the woman the name Hawa. They're very, very different from each other. They sound almost nothing like each other. And so there's a distancing that's happening, where they are once very close. What's happened because of sin is they're distanced. And the word Hawa sounds nothing like the word Adam, but it does sound like another word that we've heard so far in the story, which is the word Haya, which is the word for creature. Haya and Hawa are very similar. And so what's happening here is it's very, very subtle, but it's super significant. What Adam is doing is he's demoting the woman. He's saying, you're more like a creature, actually, than you are like me, like a human. He's demoting her very significantly. And here we start to see and hear the words of God. He will rule over you. This is part of the consequence. This is what happens because of sin. And even the thing that sounds like a blessing in this passage is not. Adam says to the woman, she is the mother of all the living. It sounds like such a nice thing to say. But listen to what Dr. Proven says. In verse 20, the woman is essentially defined not as a co-ruler, not as an azer kenegdo, not as a, 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 a that, but in terms of one of her functions in the world. It seems to me that in this naming there is a narrowing of her vo- vocation, that her sole purpose comes to bear children for the man, in fact. So it's amazingly subtle, but it's showing us that the power struggle has already begun. That the woman uh, the woman may be the main character at the tree in the, in the story, in the narrative of the fail, but here it is the man who is the first mover in the power struggle. That he distances himself from his partner who was meant to be close to her. They were were meant to be one flesh, and he distances himself from her by her name. And then he demotes her from being an azer konegdo to being something like a creature. And then he demeans her full humanity by defining her only by one of her attributes, which is her ability to bear him children. And so this is the terrible outcome of sin. Made to rule together as man and woman, we will now be at odds with one another and be locked in a power struggle. And this is exactly what we see playing out in the rest of Genesis. Men and women, specifically husbands and wives, will be engaged in power struggles again and again with terrible consequences. And just like Gareth said last week, and as it works out in all of the rest of the Bible, those consequences don't just stay locked in with one group of people. We don't just see men and women or husbands and wives fighting with each other. What do we see in Genesis 4? Brothers locked in a power struggle. And Cain kills his brother Abel with terrible consequences. We will see this power struggle now define gender relationships throughout the Bible. don't have to look any farther than Genesis 4 and Lamech's story to see that happening. And then you'll see, even further than that, tribes and uh, nations coming against one another in epic power struggles as well, where one group will try to dominate the other subtly demoting and degrading and distancing them, which has had disastrous consequences. And I think all of a sudden, at least for me, this story, this ancient story, now becomes very contemporary. You know, our world has turned many, many, many times since this story was written, but I can't think of uh, a better way to describe our world today. It's very contemporary. So I want to close with what, what what do we do? What do we do with this Story And I, there's three things I want to call us to this morning as we close. The first is that we're called to lament. Um, I want to say, again, a big thank you to those who shared and, and everyone who came to the Lament Night uh, on Thursdays. So, oh, it was such a, a um, sad night, but it's a beautiful night. And so thanks again for honoring us with your stories. To lament is, is to continue to do what we did on Thursday, which is to name the darkness in our world. That we will not be people who just sit by and say, oh, that's just the way the world should be. It's just another broken relationship. But we name it, and we we, we will not be silent. That is part of our witness. That is part of our lament, to say, I will not be silent about the darkness that I see in the world and the way that these consequences have tumbled down throughout history onto us. And I'll just say, reading through this passage in these past few weeks, here's a few of the laments that I have, just just personal. I lament that as a man... In, in a sense, we have been the winners of this power struggle throughout history most of the time. And that has uh, dehumanized untold numbers of women throughout history. And that's very, very sad to me. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. When, when it, we were meant to rule together, when we engage in power struggle over one another, it doesn't just dehumanize the person who's below, although it definitely does that. It dehumanizes the person who, who's subjugating. And I just know, as a man... Um, which is something I tell myself every morning in the mirror. You're a man. <laughs> as a man, I kind of don't know what that all means, to be honest. Some of the scripts that I've inherited about what that means are all about power. And I try, like, that's part of my life story, is to try to detangle that. I lament that. I lament that as a Christian, we've taken this story, and what we've done is we've, uh, Christian people throughout history have gone around the world and said, like, what we're going to do is dominate you taken the story of, of Jesus and the sword, and we've, uh, it's had terrible consequences. We don't have to look any farther than our own nation. I lament what's happening right now in Israel and Palestine. 3,000-year-old um, evidence of, of this exact consequence. It's a lament for me. I don't know what they are for you. Where do we lament? Where do we call out the darkness? But as we move towards Christmas and we sit in the darkness, Advent begins in the dark, as Gareth said last week, we also must learn to hope as John 1 says, to see the light that's shining in the darkness. And remember all of these consequences? They start with God saying something really weird. He says, I will increase. I will turn up the consequences. I will multiply the consequences. And when we look at the darkness in our world and in our lives, we might think, like, why, God? Why, oh, why, oh, why would you do this? And one of the reasons the Bible gives is that God says, I'm multiplying these consequences so that it gets dark in here so that you won't just get a little bit darker than you are, but that the sin would basically pile up. Think of the shades going up so that this room becomes extremely dark, extremely fast. God is trying to say, I want you to see the darkness that happens when we choose not to partner with God, but to partner with the chaos dragon in the world. And that is what we are called to do when we lament, is to cry out, to say, I'm not ignoring this anymore, but also to admit that we are helpless when it comes to the chaos dragon in the world. Like, I don't know what you think when you open up your news app and you see the front page. Every week, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. I don't know what I can do. And so we are taught to learn to cry out, to learn to lament, but to cry out to God. That's where all this language comes from. Save us. Please help us. Let me turn away from the way that I'm going and come back into this story. And at Christmas, what we celebrate is that God did come. He came in the person of Jesus. He has answered every single one of those prayers in the person of Jesus. And he didn't come in the way that we all thought. Instead, he came as a baby and he got completely snowed under by the avalanche of sin. All these consequences that are mentioned in Genesis 3, all of the thousands of years of them were, were met in Jesus. That he took all of those consequences on. And even more than that, it says that Jesus on the cross became cursed. Adam and Eve are never cursed in this passage. If I was God, that'd be the first thing I would do. Curse them. They are never cursed. Jesus even takes on the curse for us. And he's completely consumed by this panther of sin that crouches at every one of our doors. But the dark power which holds each one of us captive was not able to hold Jesus. That is the good news of the story. As the song says, he burst forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's grip has lost, or sin's curse has lost its grip on me as the good news of the gospel. And this is what all the New Testament writers are trying to tell us, that the curse which exists for all of us has been reversed by our King who has become cursed for us. That the wall of hostility that's been built over thousands of years and that we continue to build day after day after day, this wall of hostility has been broken down by Jesus who is our peace. That the sin, the power of sin, this dark power that enslaves us, we are now free of. Because of King Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, in one of the most important verses in the New Testament, says it this way. Galatians 3. For those of you who were baptized into Jesus have been clothed with Christ. This is a little jazz riff on the end of Genesis 3, where the people are going out, they're kicked out of the garden, but they're naked and ashamed. God clothes them. Paul is saying this is what God has done for us in Jesus, for all of us who are ashamed. He clothes us with Jesus himself. We're willing to walk into God's story. And in God's story, there is now no Jew or Greek. These ethnic battles that have defined us over centuries are are no longer true in the family of God. Slave or free, the way that we economically oppress one another, are no longer the key things in the family of God. And it's so key for us today, male and female. That is not the dynamic, the power dynamic that exists anymore if you are, as he says, one in Christ Jesus. We can be brought back to that story where we are able to be co-rulers once again with one another. This is what Jesus has done, and this is the absolutely crazy invitation to each one of us. If we're in Christ, we're free to become human once again, to become come back to those pictures of what of how God created the world. And we as a church are invited to become a human family once again. That's what we we're supposed to be, is a witness to the watching world, which is sitting in darkness and may not have language for it, may not have eyes to see that the snake is at work. We, as a group of people, free from the power of the snake, under the um, lordship of Jesus, are able to shine a light on into the watching world, that they might see something is different here. There might be a different way of doing this. This is the invitation for us as the church. And I think it would be a great place to end the sermon, not only because of time. But I, I, I don't want to leave this. I was thinking and praying about this this week. I don't want to leave this as just theoretical, which is something I often do. I I'm, I'm often don't like to tell you very practically what to do. That's Mitch's job. He'll be like, you need to read all of Ephesians 3 and memorize it by the end of the week, um, which is great. But I don't want to leave it theoretical today. I was just burning on my heart. So just here's, here's how do we do this? How do we become these people? Just a few tips. First, become aware of where you're living in the old story. Where are you still living under the power of the snake? Where do you demean? Where do you demote? Where do you dehumanize? Where do you distance yourself from other people? All of us do this. Our cultures may have taught us to do it differently, but we all do it in some way, shape, or form. We're still living in that old story. Where do you do this in your life? Think of your closest relationships. Genesis 3 talks about husband and wife. But think of your closest relationships you have. Think of gendered relationships that you have in general. Where might you just be dunking on the other gender? Or your own gender? Hating on yourself? Which ethnic and cultural groups do you do this to? We all do it. Where is God inviting us back into his story? You know, a question that God always, it's like a, it's like a sore muscle. God just pushes on it for me. Where are you unable to forgive? Where are you unable to forgive? In those places, at least in my life, those are places where I'm still trying to hold power over someone. And I'm looking at that other person who has wronged me, and look, we've been wronged by other people, we've been wronged by communities, but I'm looking at that other person as if they are Satan themselves. And and the Bible is very clear. He deserves no mercy from us. He deserves all of our anger, our vitriol, everything. But humans do not. They are made in God's image. The places where we struggle to forgive is exactly the places that are being talked about here. They're the places from which these wars grow. And God is inviting us into new humans. These are the places where the snake still has his claws in us. So would you hear today Jesus' offer of freedom for you and for me to see our king who came as a vulnerable child, who died naked, cursed, and shamed. And would you walk the same path with him, to die and then rise as a new human, to become human once again. And that's what we celebrate every time we come to the table, which we're about to do today. So we invite you to come to the table to receive this story that we might become new humans, a new human family, and give hope and light that we talk about so often at Christmas to the rest of the world. Let's pray to close. God, I thank you for the... um, Well, this this is a tough passage for us to hear, and I'm sure it hits home in, in many different ways, uh, if we allow it to seep into our hearts. So we pray for, um, we just pray against the work of, of the chaos monster in our world and in our lives and the ways he has hurt us, the ways he, we have partnered with him to hurt other people, and we just confess. We repent. We ask that you would show us those areas, and would you also give us hope, the hope we celebrate at Christmas, that the light has come, that you have shone in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome. And by your grace, even now as we sing, as we give, as we take communion together, would you make us into people who look like Jesus, that the watching world may be able to see your light shining through us. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.